For those of you who are new to Revolution Church, we uh, like to go through books of the Bible and study the Bible the way it's written. And currently, we are in the book of Genesis, and it's been amazing, amen? It's been just really cool to just see how God laid the foundations for the world, for society, and for culture. And even though as our world seems very unsteady, God's taken us back to the foundations. Our scripture reader this morning is Stacy Ward. First time for, to read for us, right? Yes, great. Um, we're thankful that you're here. And remember that um, we always end with, this is the word of the Lord, and we respond with, thanks be to God. So we're going to start that this morning again. So Stacy, read God's word for us on verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there were none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. The Pharaoh, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and he quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there was no one who could interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh, a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. And when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly at the, as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh... God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will... No, that's good. Thank um, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I'm very, very thankful for a church that loves your word. Father, may it be not just something that we're edified by, but may it be the rule for all that we do. May it be the guideline for how we raise our children, how we spend our money, 
how we interact with others, especially those who don't know Christ. Father, I pray that we would learn from Joseph this morning and what a beautiful picture of Christ that he is. And so open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds so that we may see Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Anybody recognize who this guy is? Kurt Warner. So Kurt Warner played for Northern Iowa University, not a school known for its football program. He did pretty good while he was there. But when the NFL draft came around, the first round, not picked. The second round, not picked. The third round, not picked. And then in the supplemental draft, not picked. And so he went back to his small little town, and he worked as a grocery stocker in Hy-Vee Grocery Store, stocking cans on shelves. And that's what he was doing. And then someone approached him about playing for something new called arena football. It was indoor football, kind of a gimmick thing. I don't even know if it's still around today or not, but he started playing this arena football, and they basically got paid like a couple hundred bucks a game next to nothing. But he did extremely well in the arena football, and I believe his team won the arena football championship. And the Rams had their starting quarterback hurt, their backup hurt, and then their third-round quarterback hurt, and they were desperate And so somebody heard about this guy playing this weird thing called arena football, and they pulled up Kurt Warner, and Kurt Warner won the Super Bowl, not only once, but twice. You talk about an amazing story from stocking shelves in a grocery store to being a multimillionaire and now a Hall of Fame quarterback. And success doesn't always happen that way. But this morning in this story, we see Joseph, he exceeds even Kurt Warner's wildest dreams. He goes from a dungeon to second in command in the most powerful empire on planet Earth. Genesis 41 is, is pretty amazing. We're going to divide it up into five categories here. There's Pharaoh, Pharaoh dreams and dreams again. Joseph is remembered and called. And then Pharaoh tells the dream and then the dilemma. And then, Andre, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to do me a favor. <laughs> I can't see my screen. The The... the the stroller is in my way. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's a first right there. <laughs> we love your baby. Just the wrong spot. <laughs> Joseph interpretation and solution. And then the fifth point, Joseph's exaltation and administration. So let's jump right in. All right. So it was been two whole years. And the Bible says it specifically, not just about two years, but two whole years, 24 months since Joseph thought, I've got a way out of this dungeon. I've interpreted this dream. This guy is going to go back to serve the Pharaoh. He's going to tell Pharaoh, get me out of here. Yay, any day now. And day after day, nothing. Week after week, month after month, and the cupbearer just flat forgot Joseph. That could have been pretty discouraging, especially after the circumstances that put him there. He was falsely accused. And especially after what happened before that, that he was a slave when he was supposed to be the exalted son, the favorite of his dad, his brothers threw him in a pit, he sold into slavery. I mean, everything just every time it looks like things are going up, they get knocked back down. And what is Joseph doing wrong in any of this? Nothing. It's not because of any grave sin that Joseph committed. It's just life was dealing him a bad deck of cards. But was it really bad? Not really. The Bible says that through all this, he prospered. It's like, you prosper as a slave? You, you prosper while in jail? Yes. Prosperity is not what's in your wallet. It's what's in your heart and how God grows you and builds your character. And I know there's people in this room, you're probably going through one of those dark times like Joseph. And you're wondering, why in the world is God allowing this to happen? And your question shouldn't be why. Your question should be what? Not why, God, but what, God, do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn from this situation? And so these two whole years passed, and the Pharaoh dreams this dream, and he's standing before the Nile. Now, remember, the Egyptians had lots of gods. They had 10 main gods. That's why there was 10 plagues, because that was an attack on each one of their gods. But their main god was the Nile, and they worshiped the god of the Nile. And so life came from the Nile, and this dream is going to come out of the Nile, but he's going to... God is going to use this to show him that I'm the true God, not this river that gives life. I'm the true giver of life. And so all this came up out of the Nile, these seven cows. And in the Bible, seven is what? The number of 
perfection. So he's showing that these things will be complete. And these, these cows are attractive and plump. And then there's ugly and thin cows. And they came up, again, out of the Nile. You see the repetition of the phrase there that all this is coming out of what you think is God. But you will show that the bad things are coming from your God as well. And that the, the, your God is going to fail you. And the true God is the one who will be exalted. And the ugly and the thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And the Pharaoh woke. Man, he's probably thinking, man, that was a weird dream. I shouldn't eat so much pepperoni pizza before I went to bed. So huh, I'm going to go back to sleep. But God says, no, no, not letting you off that easy. You're going to have another dream. Seven years of grain, good. And, and they'll eat up the, the ones that are not so good. And they were blighted by the east wind. Eighteen times in Scripture, you see the phrase, the east wind. And it's always, 18 out of 18, the judgment hand of God. The judgment hand of God. Jonah was on a ship. And guess where the wind came that blew the ship off the course from the east wind? And you can just go through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. The east wind is always from uh, the judgment of God. And when Christ returns to judge the world, guess where he's going to come from? Out of the east, eastern sky. So you see some, a lot of uh, parallels there. And so these thin ears, they swallow up the full, ear, the, the full ears, just like the thin cows gobbled up the, not, the plump cows. And so, man, he wakes up, he's troubled, he's bothered. Now, this is really interesting because, I mean, remember how Joseph's story starts? How many dreams does he have? Two dreams, right? And these two dreams are the same. They're both about how he will rule over not only his brothers, but his parents and over the whole world. And so then, while he's in prison, the cupbearer, right, and the baker come them, and they, there's two dreams. Now, these, these have two different interpretations. One turns out to be good for the cupbearer. One, not so good. You know, he got his head pulled off from him. And so now we go to Pharaoh. How many dreams? Two dreams. But these two are the same dream with the same interpretation. And But again, seven good years, seven bad years. He takes all this information to his magicians and his wise men. Magicians manipulate the, pre the future. Wise men tell you about the future. But are these godly wise men? No, they're ungodly. And so they don't really have answers. They, they can manipulate things. They can make it look like they're trying try to tell the truth, but they really can't. And Pharaoh told his dreams, but none could interpret them. This reminds me of like when Moses will later go before Pharaoh, remember, and tell him what God has told him. And He'll say, well, why should I listen to you? Who are you? And he puts down his rod, and what happens to the rod? Turns into a snake. And the magician's like, oh, we could do that too. And whether they really did it, or whether it was just sleight of hand, and you know, a little snake up the sleeve, who knows what happened there. But what happens to the snake? Their snakes are all eaten up by God's snake. And then you go to like Daniel, in the same situation. Daniel can interpret the dreams that their magicians and soothsayers can't. And then you even got the witch of Endor. Saul goes to the witch of Endor in disguise, <clears throat> and he thinks that she can predict the future and do all that stuff and call up spirits. He says, I want you to call up the spirit of Elijah. And so she does her incantations, and guess what? The spirit of Elijah actually comes up, and she's horrified. Like, I've been just tricking people all these times, but here's the real deal. Now, we don't know if it actually was Elijah or a demon spirit impersonating. We can get into that discussion later. But the world always has its copycats of what God's supernatural abilities are. And God's is obviously superior in all those situations. And so Joseph now is remembered and called. It says that, I, the cupbearer says, I remember my offenses, plural, today. Now, if you remember chapter 40, the cupbearer and the, um, the baker, it says they committed an offense, singular. Like together they were in on something. And again, I believe that they were both guilty, like the two thieves on the cross were both guilty, but one was pardoned and one was punished. And so he's saying, but now I have offenses today. I remember offense number one was what I did against Pharaoh, and that's what got me put in prison. But offense number two was I promised Joseph I would remember, and I didn't. And that's what he's recalling now. And again, the word remember here, I don't think it meant that he had amnesia, because how could you forget something so traumatic? You're in prison, and you just totally forget the guy that got you in prison? 
The word remember could mean to regard. He did not regard Joseph. It's like, ah, I really don't want to deal with that right now. So I really think he just was inconsiderate, didn't stop to consider Joseph in that situation. So he, but thankfully, he does remember here and then feeling the pressure because Pharaoh's not happy right now. And what do you think he's going to do to everybody? The last, the, la, you know, the last time he got upset about things, people ended up in prison. This time people might die. And so he's thinking, I, I need to regard Joseph this time. So when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he said, I remember all that back then, the chief baker in the custody of the house and the captain of the guard. And who was the captain of the guard? Potiphar, right? It's interesting they keep throwing that title out, but Potiphar's in control subtly because he really doesn't believe that Joseph was trying to rape his wife. He believes he was just framed, but he had to do something to keep peace at home. And says he, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having his own dream with its own separate interpretation. Remember, the first two dreams, same interpretation. Pharaoh's dreams will have the same interpretation, the one in the middle. It's interesting if you just put these on a chart, but I didn't right now. Um, <clears throat> it says, any young Hebrew, he remembered that he was distinct, he was different, he was there with us, and he was a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and watch this here, he interpreted our dreams. Now, remember, when they asked him about the dream, Joseph said, it's not me, it's God. But the guy keeps saying, well, Joseph interpreted dreams, doesn't give God any credit. I think if he had been converted in that experience, he would have remembered Joseph, but he didn't remember Joseph. He didn't even recognize that it's God working the situation. He, he's just given Joseph the credit for it. You'll see that Joseph does the opposite and gives God's credit. He says, giving interpretation, each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. And that's the thing you see consistently with the prophets of God all throughout the Bible, all the New Testament. If they say something's going to happen, it happens. Because Deuteronomy says, if it doesn't, what happens? They're dead, okay? It's execution. You, didn't, you just didn't go around making false prophecies willy-nilly like you see people doing today. The world is full of false prophets today. I, I can name some well-known ones who said, I rebuke COVID and COVID will come to an end right now. And did it happen? No. Did anybody stone them? Not recommending it. I'm just saying, but anybody even hold them accountable? No. People still give millions to their ministries so they can fly around on their private jet planes and make more false prophecies. Beware, okay? If the Bible says that, that this is the way you tell who's a false prophet and you see people doing it today, I'd recommend you not support their broadcast, okay? Um, <clears throat> then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. It's interesting that the prison he's in was more like a dungeon. Joseph called it a pit. They're calling it a pit. And, of course, that's a throwback to what? Where did his brothers put him? In a pit, okay? And, of course, the pit is also a picture of the grave, that Christ was in the grave and brought up out of the grave. But we'll talk about that more in a little bit. <clears throat> it says, and he had shaved himself, okay? And the language here is that he himself was shaved. So it doesn't mean that he necessarily did it. I'm, I'm guessing that probably the servants did it. Different translations read differently on this, but he himself was shaved. Why was that? What's that about? The Egyptians, especially the Egyptian elite, the rulers, they were fastidious about cleanliness. And of course, where do lice like to hide? In hair. And so if anybody is to come in the presence of the Pharaoh, they have to be shaved, cleaned, bathed, no chance of lice, no chance of anything like that. And of course, one of the plagues later will be what? <laughs> lice, okay? And so, and it's interesting, they did all this quickly. The whole concept of having your whole body shaved quickly doesn't sound too exciting to me. Okay, so I, I imagine you can't get a quick, they didn't have like certain types of shaving cream and all that stuff like that, so maybe this was painful, I don't know. But also he changed his clothes, he needed to be clean before he came into Pharaoh's presence because cleanliness was, was almost a form of idolatry. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said, now watch the words here, of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Three times. Just like when the Bible says of God, holy, holy, holy. He's saying, you, you, you. Where is Pharaoh's focus right now on Joseph? Where is Pharaoh expecting a solution from Joseph? All eyes are on Joseph right now by Pharaoh's words. But what does Joseph say? The same thing he said to the, to the two officers in prison. It's not me. And you could probably, when he said that, uh, 
No, actually, Pharaoh, I can't. Pharaoh's heart probably sunk, like, holy, nobody? Really, am I going to be troubled by this dream? But then it's almost like Joseph's setting up, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's interesting, the word favorable here, it's the Hebrew word for shalom. Now, already, Joseph hasn't even heard the dream. But he knows the answer. He knows it's going to be a favorable outcome because he's tight with God. But Joseph is quickly to deflect credit here. He could have easily capitalized on this, you know, and just taken advantage of this. But he's like, hey, it's not me. It's not me. Joseph exercises something that you see consistently throughout as he's maturing, humility. And humility is not something that is appreciated in our culture today. In fact, it is something that is totally contrary to the human heart. We are so full of pride. We, we, we brag about ourselves. We've, we've perfected the humble brag. We, we post pictures of ourselves on social media, like, look at me. Here's me eating my breakfast. Here's me this. Here's me that. And we're just so full of pride. We have a whole month dedicated to pride. And the Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And yet we celebrate human pride, and we celebrate the arrogance of we know more, and we're not very good at it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. People confuse humility with berating yourself. Oh, I'm just, I'm nobody, I'm, on, I'm stupid, I'm not really that smart, and just like that. And, and that's not what the Bible's talking about at all. It's like you are so preoccupied and prioritizing others and what their needs are that you're consumed with helping others, serving others, loving others, praying for others, that you very think, oh yeah, well, what about me? That you're like low on the list. We've talked many times about how do you spell joy? Your priority list is Jesus, others, you. When you put the Lord first and others second, and you humble yourself, God honors that, and God blesses that. And Joseph right here shows a great deal of humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, commands you to humble yourself. See, there's, there's two ways this can work. You can lift yourself up and have God knock you down, or you can say, you know what, hold on, I'll back down. I'll willingly do this. You don't have to knock me down, God. I'll be glad to humble myself. And you should humble yourself. Why? Under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now think about, what if Joseph was reading this? What if Joseph had a copy of the New Testament way in advance? The proper time, 13 years of this, <laughs> 11 years in slavery and prison, and two more years in prison being forgotten. From age 17, when all this started, when he was thrown in the pit, now to age 30, and God says, okay, Joseph, now's the proper time. Would any of us be willing to go for through 13 years of what Joseph's going through? We think five weeks of unemployment is like, oh my gosh, God, you've let me down. 13 years of this. How, how many years in uh, the, these camps you were in there, Chenda? I mean, were you, and you didn't even know the Lord at that time. You know, I'm sure there's people today that are suffering and they're wondering, and there's people in this room, you're going through a difficult time, you're wondering how long. God knows the proper time. And that's where we have to trust him. And, and it says he will exalt you. And if Joseph isn't a fulfillment of this verse, I don't know really who is. So humility, what does this look, in your, look like in your conversations? When you talk, if we actually had a meter measuring words, what percentage of your words are about you and what percentage of your words are about asking about the other person? I was in a conversation with somebody recently, and I was asking them questions, and I was just saying, so there's actually another pastor. I said, so what are you preaching on this Sunday? Okay, really, tell me about this, tell me about that, whatever. And it was funny because throughout the whole conversation, we talked about 20 minutes, he never asked me any questions back. Like, well, what are you preaching on? It was just, you know, and I wasn't like just trying to test them or trap them. Well, it's something, but it's interesting how we don't ask questions about other people. We tend to in fact, we're really guilty of one-upmanship, where someone tells a story, yeah, about one time when I was in a car wreck, oh yeah, well, my car was this way, and all the airbags went off, and the car flipped, oh yeah, and just like, 
Yeah, I was in hospital for a week. Oh, I was in hospital for two weeks. And we have this way of just topping people's story, like your story stinks. Let me lock your story down. Look at my story. You know, we, one comedian calls it the me monster. And we, we're so guilty of this. What, what does humility look like in your conversations? And what does humility look like on your social media? I'm not a big fan of social media. I kind of use it mostly to promote the church and things like that. But have we perfected the humble brag? Is it, look at my kids, they're wonderful. And I remember years ago at the previous church, the church that sponsored us here, and you, you probably don't know who I'm talking about, so don't try to guess. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think anybody in this room actually knows this person. But this person on Facebook would just talk about how wonderful their husband was, how wonderful their kids were, and here's me and my husband out to dinner, and blah, 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 he's the best husband in the world, blah, 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 and all this stuff on social media, you think they were just perfect. And remember, one Friday night, I'm at a football game at Dickinson High School, and I get a phone call from this person, and so I have to walk out of the stand so I can hear, and she talks about how she wants to kill herself because her husband is so cruel to her, not just once or twice, but consistently. And I'm like, that's not what your social media says. <laughs> and that's why we have to be really careful from both sides of social media. We're promoting one thing that's really not true, but also there's other people looking at that, man, why can't my life be like that? Well, their life isn't like that either, okay? And a lot of Especially young girls get very discouraged because they look at what they see as perfection from other girls, and they think, I'm not that way. I'm fat. I'm not beautiful. I don't have nice hair like that. and I don't have boyfriends like that, and they get discouraged by all that. Humility definitely doesn't show up on social media very much. What does it look like in your spending? I'm, I'm so amazed at a generation that talks about, well, I need to have me time. I'm like, what is the rest of your time? I mean, what generation is more self-absorbed than this generation of young people to where they're like, and then they say, I need to have me time, or I'm going to take an, a gap year, I'm going to take a year off. I'm like, what have you been doing all for your whole life? You've had it easy. You've had everything handed to you, and we're just so obsessed with me. I, gotta go, I have to go de-stress and get a manicure and a pedicure, and I have to get a massage, I have to get this and whatever. I have to get me a $9 coffee. You know? It's like me, 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 me. I think your spending needs to be like, who can I help with what God has given me? One couple I knew of years ago got a tremendous raise. He did. And they were like, the first question we asked is, God, why did you give this to us? And they felt very led that we were already doing very fine, that God must have given this to us to give away, to be generous with, to think of other people. What, is your, what does the ledger look like when you open the app for your bank account? What does it look like in your marriage? You know, people say marriage is 50-50. Really, if you have a 50-50 marriage, you're going to fail. It needs to be 100-100, at least striving for that where you're overlapping. But do you lift up the other person? Do you honor the other person? Do you serve the other person? What does humility look like in your parenting? Are you trying to be the perfect parent? Or can you say to your kids, hey, daddy's sorry. Daddy messed up. And, and then, you know, when I was your age, I didn't do this very well. I'm, I wanna, I'm trying to protect you from the mistakes I've made and not present yourself as the perfect parent. So Pharaoh tells the dreams and the dilemma. And um, I kind of looked around for uh, the best illustration of this. And actually, the most um, fascinating rendition of this dream I found on a thing called Superbook which my kids love to watch. I'm going to show it to you right now. Just give, kind of help your imagination here. It has been a while, my friend. I feared you had forgotten me. I apologize, Joseph. Come. There may be a way to get you out of prison. I am here at the Pharaoh's request because you told me the meaning of my dreams two long years ago when I was imprisoned here with you. And everything you said about my dreams came to pass, exactly as you predicted. I was given back all my duties, just as you said. But now, the Pharaoh himself is haunted with the most terrible and confusing dreams, Joseph. No one in all the land has been able to explain their true meaning or bring him peace. The spirit of the one true God can provide what the Pharaoh seeks. Yes. But if you do not please the Pharaoh with your interpretation... (laughs) 
I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream, to interpret it. It is not in me. Oh, no. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered, Thin and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. Hopefully that helps you with your thinking of this. So Pharaoh said, Behold, in my dream, I'm standing on the banks of the Nile, and I'm getting out of the Nile. Again, keep their God in reference here. And I, these are as ugly as I've never seen in the land of Egypt. This is this is horrifying to him. There was speaking of ugly animals. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the baseball player's Mickey Mantle? Okay, Mickey Mantle was a great Hall of Fame baseball player. Billy Martin was so-so baseball player, but a great coach. In fact, he became coach of the Texas Rangers when they were a new team, and they were horrible. And he took them to being a playoff team, and so he—that's where he kind of came became famous as a coach. And so. He did so well with the Texas Rangers that the team and the owner presented to him a brand new shotgun as a way in saying, thanks for having a great year. And so Billy Martin wasn't a hunter, but he wanted to hunt. So he told Mickey Mantle, his friend, he said, hey, let's go hunting sometime. I got this new shotgun. And Mickey Mantle says, hey, I have a friend down in, near San Antonio that has a big old ranch. We can go down there and go hunting. Of course, this is before cell phones, things like that. He said, let's just drive down there. So they drove four hours from the Dallas-Fort Worth area all the way down at this way out in the country, northwest of San Antonio. And he said, hey, just wait here in the car. I'm going to go inside, ask, knock on the door of my doctor friend here, and see, you know, make sure it's okay for a hunt. I'm sure it's going to be fine. So he goes up to the door, knocks on the door, and he's like, hey, great, glad you're here. And he said, yeah, I was hoping we could hunt here a little bit on your property. He's like, sure, that'd be great. He said, hey, but could you do me a big favor? Before you go hunting, he said, I've got this old mule out in the field, and it's been around forever and it's more like a pet than it is uh, an animal, and I need to put it down because it's not well, and I just can't bring myself to do it. I just don't have the heart to do it. The animal just means, has meant so much to me, and so would you mind putting down that mule for me before you go hunting? He's like, sure, I'll do that, and so Mickey Mantle's walking back to the car, and he's thinking, man, I'm going to play Billy Martin a big prank here because Billy Martin was a jokester. He always liked to play jokes on other. I'm going to play this joke on Billy Martin. So he gets in the car, and he, he slams the door and goes, oh, man, I can't believe it. And he goes, what? What's wrong? He said, we drove all this way. And the guy said, no, we can't hunt. He's like, what? Really? He said, yeah, man, I, I tell you, what, I'm going to show this doctor a lesson. I'm going to shoot one of his animals. He's like, no, no, you can't do that. That's wrong. I like, no, no, we drove all this way. For him to say no, he should have said yes. He said, he said I'm going to go out there. Just wait here. Give me that shotgun. And so he goes out there to the mule, and he shoots it in the neck. And after he shoots it, he goes, bang, bang. And he turns around and looks, and he says, what happened, Billy? And he goes, he said, yeah, I, I think you're right. This guy was wrong. I took out two of his cows. <laughs> Has nothing to do with my message. Just thought you'd enjoy that one. Yeah. <laughs> so these ugly animals here, okay? Thin, ugly cows, the first seven plump cows, and they had eaten them up. But there was no difference. 
And the, the message here is that the seven years after are going to be so bad, you will never even know that the seven good years even happened. They will be like a gone, forgotten memory. And so that's the symbolism there. And then it goes on to say that the seven years happened. So it's repeating of the same thing, we go, but it's gone from livestock to grain. The two things that people eat are both going to be affected. And so the seven years withered, the thin, and then the east wind. What's the east wind talking about? Again, the judgment of God, 18 times in Scripture. And so he says, I told it to the magicians, I've told it to the soothsayers. No one had an interpretation. So Pharaoh is feeling really distraught. But then that brings us to where Joseph provides the interpretation, but not only interpretation, but the solution. And there's a chiastic structure in this, in this passage. It's really fascinating. <clears throat> You'll see here, it start, the story starts with the dreams of Pharaoh, God revealing, and what God's going to do. It ends with the dream of Pharaoh being doubled. It's fixed by God, and God's going to bring it about. And then it moves its way into the story here with the seven years, seven years on the way out, seven years, seven years as we're building this sandwich. And what is in the meat of the story here? It says, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So God, through this chiastic structure, is trying to tell us the core of the story is God is speaking to Pharaoh. You say, well, Gary, why is God speaking to Pharaoh? Pharaoh's not a believer. No, he's definitely not. And there's no evidence that Pharaoh becomes a believer like this. There's other kings later. We, we see what Daniel talked to certain kings, and they became believers. There's no evidences. But what I think the main point of this is, is that God speaks to kings, rulers, prime ministers, presidents, because he holds them accountable. When Jesus returns to earth, what is he going to do? He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the Bible says he will judge the nations, the nations. And all kings will bow before him, and he will judge them. How will he judge them? On how they treated Israel. And then on how he treated the least of these. And so therefore, that's why the Bible says you should pray for kings and presidents and people in authority, because they will someday answer for God in a way that we will not. And so you see that all throughout the Bible where God is speaking to kings, trying to hold them to a measure of accountability. And so what's at the core of this story is that God is speaking to Pharaoh. Will Pharaoh respond? So God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. He said, there, there will come seven years of plenty throughout the land of Egypt. And there's famine, and the famine will consume the land. Just kind of skimming through these verses we've already read. And the plenty will be unknown by the land, I'm sorry, will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. In other words, it, the seven years are not going to be just seven good years. It'll be seven like of the best years that the country's ever had. I mean, it's like they plant everything. It's just multiplying like crazy. And it's so good, but then people will forget because the next seven years will be absolutely horrible. So the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that it's fixed. The reason God gave you this dream twice, just using livestock the first time, grain the second time, but the same meaning is because this is a done deal. The reason that's important is because you see dreams in the future where Daniel, speaking to kings, and God gave them a dream, but then said, but if you repent, these things won't happen. And you see certain kings that say, okay, I'm sorry, God, and God gives them a few more years. They're saying, ah, Pharaoh, whether you repent or don't repent, this is fixed. This is a done deal. There's nothing you can do about it. Kind of like Jonah going to Nineveh and saying, God has shown me that he's going to destroy you. But then they repented, so God says, okay, no, I won't destroy you. Okay? And again, it's not God changes his mind. God knows from the end and from the beginning, but this is the way he presents it to them. And he says, but this dream, because you've had it twice, it means it's fixed. <clears throat> so Pharaoh, he said, and so now he has a solution. He said, now, therefore, because of all what this dream means, you, Pharaoh, you need to select someone who's discerning and a wise man. Discerning means they can read the landscape. They can read the room. They know what's going on, but wise means they have a solution for what's going on in the room. And set him over the land of, of, of Egypt. Now again, that wasn't part of the interpretation. How does Joseph know this? God gave him the interpretation of the dream, but Joseph has just learned a lot of wisdom through the years, and God has given that through him as a resource that he's tapping into now to offer this solution. It wasn't that anything part of religion, of revelation. So he says, let Pharaoh, you need to do this. 
proceed to appoint overseers. In other words, pick someone to be your prime minister, but then you pick all the guys who work under them. So like you're still in control, and over the land to take one-fifth, anybody good at math here? How much is one-fifth by percentage? 20%, good job. So um, it's, it's been said that the taxation that Egypt, the Pharaoh had over Egypt was 10%. He's saying double the tax because we're going to have a, we have to double things up for the seven years. And what's interesting is all throughout the Bible, remember before Moses gave the law on tithing, you saw who tithed. Abraham tithed. Okay. You saw um, hold on, uh, Jacob tithe. Then you see during the law they tithe. And then you see after the law, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you, sh- you tithe off these things, and th- that's what you should have done, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. So you see tithe as a universal principle that a per- 10% belongs to God, but Pharaoh said, I'm God, give it 10% to me. And now they're going to double the 10%, make it 20 to make it for the next one for after the plentiful years are over. He said, and we need to store up these things. <clears throat> and of course, storing up is a good idea, Okay. Dave Ramsey talks about how you should have six months of income just in case you get laid off. You never know. You say, oh, I'm not going to lose my job. You never know, okay? You never know how bad things could go quickly, how bad the economy could tank worse than it already is. You have no idea what's in store for you. Saving up is a very biblical principle. Solomon said in Proverbs, go to the ant, you sluggard. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. And consider her ways and be wise how she stores up for the winter that's to come. Anyway, it goes on to say here that um, there should be a reserve for the land, and, and that's a great idea. You don't know the end from the beginning. You don't, you're, God knows the future. And James, he rebukes them and says, you go, you know, go away, you rich people who say that we're going to go into a certain land and make this and do these investments, make all this money. He says, you don't know what a day may bring forth. You don't know. That's why, and that's where the phrase comes. How many of your grandmas say, Lord willing? Okay, they say, Lord, or Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Remember that phrase? Okay, and so that's the way we should refer to the future. We don't know what's going to happen, so we should save up. How many of you remember when Ann Richards was governor of Texas? Most of you are too young. So she spent Texas into incredible debt. And George W. Bush became governor, and he said, we are going to do what every American should do, what every Texan should do, and that's save up for a rainy day. And so by law, we're going to have a certain percentage of all revenue in Texas will be set aside for the rainy day fund. And so we're going to save up just in case um, emergencies strike Texas, a flood, hurricanes, all things that can happen, we're going to be prepared. We're not going to have to borrow like other states do. You know, California and Illinois and Virginia and all those states are incredible debt. Do you know how much Texas has in the rainy day fund? Maybe I want to take a guess. $188 billion. $188 billion. That's why Texas' economy is so good, and that's why everybody's moving to Texas, because of this rainy day fund that's set aside for an emergency. So if anything ever bad happened to Texas, we should be in good shape if somebody doesn't run away with all of it. Okay, so this proposal pleased Pharaoh, and it pleased all his servants. That's important. It's interesting, if you par- the parallels between Joseph and Daniel, and this is where they end, because with Daniel... The king loved him, but everybody else around him didn't like him. That's why they tried to pass laws to get Daniel in trouble. But even here, everybody loves it. So we saw Pharaoh's dream and dreams again, dreams and dreams again. Joseph remembered and called. Pharaoh tells the dreams and the dilemma. Joseph offers the interpretation and the solution. And now that brings us to the last point, Joseph's exaltation and administration. So... Joseph, at one of the first high point of his life, father gives him a coat of many colors, and he has two dreams. And man, he's on top of the world. But then at at his lowest point, he's in prison, falsely accused, and again, two dreams. Now we're at the highest point of his life, royal robe, and again, all because of two dreams. When you read scripture, pay attention to patterns. They're super important. So Pharaoh said to his servants, meaning his administration, He says, can anyone find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? This is the first time the phrase Spirit of God has been mentioned since Genesis 1. It's like God, the Spirit of God was over the face of the earth. The Spirit of God 
through Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father create a perfect paradise, man messes it up and everything just goes in decline. And now here's the bright spot. Hey, a glimmer of hope, the Spirit of God reappearing in this guy, Joseph. And no wonder that Joseph is a picture of Christ. Then you see the world going to demise again, prophet after prophet after prophet saying, repent. You guys are not pleasing God. God's going to take you away into captivity to Babylon, to Assyria, and to different places. And, and then all of a sudden, a glimmer of hope rises in the second greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God hovers on him like a dove. So that's the beautiful picture in this phrase right here. It's interesting, they said, can anyone, has anybody known a man like this guy? Can we find a man like this? And you fast forward to John chapter 7, verse 46. The Pharisees are not happy that this new rebel rabbi is going around and preaching this different gospel, and not a gospel of law, but a gospel of grace. And they're like, you know, go take care of him. We're going to send these guys out to arrest him. So they sent a squadron of soldiers to arrest Jesus, and they came back and they said, uh, we didn't arrest him. Why not? Because no one ever spake like this man. It's like a flashback to Joseph. Like as Joseph was speaking to Pharaoh. He's like, has anybody ever spoken before like this guy? And he's again, once again, a picture, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, remember when Joseph first came in? I've, I've heard of you that you can interpret dreams and you can give me an answer. You, you, you. But now what has Pharaoh recognized? It's God showing you this. And he would not have seen that had Joseph not been humble. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your heavenly Father. That's the way it should be. You don't do the good works to be seen, but you do do them in a way that they can be seen and people give glory to who? Not you, but glory to God. It's amazing when whether you're 14 or 50 and you go out and do something right, you never know who's watching. But God does. And God can engineer things to where the right person is passing by at the right time to see the good thing you're doing and how that causes a ripple effect and others will know and about the glory of God. That's the way we should live our lives. And that's what Joseph did. He's giving credit to God, but he's doing good things and God gets the glory. So Pharaoh says, you shall be over my house and over all of my people. And I shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater to, than you. And so this points back to Potiphar. Remember, Potiphar said the same thing. Remember, Potiphar didn't, had, had no idea how much money he had, how much employees he had. He didn't know anything. He said, all he knew was how much food he ate. And he said, and only in regards to his wife was the only thing kept back. Joseph was in total control. And now once again, God exalts him. And now it's not just over Potiphar, the captain of the guard, this is over all of Egypt. You see, the false gospel is, if you live right, God always blesses you. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and rich, and all the things like that. Joseph's living right the whole time, and he has ups, and he has downs. He has some pretty serious downs, doesn't he? If, if that were true, if the prosperity gospel were true, then all the apostles would have been millionaires, Right? but they all died. They all died for the cause of Christ. And who lived a more perfect life than Jesus? Yet he was despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows, and crucified. So God doesn't owe you because, well, God, I went to church and I prayed this Sunday and I tied, so I'm praying on that job interview. It goes, well, this week, it doesn't work that way. We don't bargain with God. God can use your low points to make you more like Christ, he can use your high points to glorify him. We take the good with the bad. We glorify God in all of it. Job said, the Lord gave, the Lord took, takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So don't go buy into all the other false religions that, oh, bad things are happening to me. I must not be pleasing God. Oh, see, good things are happening. God must love me. God loves you always. <laughs> he uses the ups and downs both for his glory. John 14, 28 says, I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. Now, we believe in the Trinity, right? One God, eternal existence in three distinct persons, all equal, all equally God, and yet Jesus willingly submits 
to God the Father. And here Joseph is equal. In fact, he's probably smarter than Pharaoh, but he willingly submits to Pharaoh, and he's second in command. And he says, look, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And this is just like what the Father says to Jesus, that I've given you all authority. We'll talk about that more in a second. Verse 42 says, and Pharaoh took his signet ring. Okay, you know how that works. The signet ring has the king's unique insignia on it. And whenever contracts were signed, they'd pour some warm wax on there. And as it's cooling, the king would make an impression upon it. And that was like his signature. And you can buy and sell real estate with that. You could make treaties with that. You could hire and fire people. I mean, there's no limit to what you could do with the king's ring. And the king takes off this chain around his neck where the gold ring hangs. Some wore it on their finger, some wore it around their neck. And this is what the gold chain is. And he says, here, Joseph, do whatever you need to do. You talk about total trust just based on a dream. But this wasn't any dream, was it? God revealed himself in Joseph in such a supernatural way that this guy gave total trust to that. And Joseph goes from chains around his ankles to a gold chain around his neck. So Joseph had four robes, if you follow his life. He has the coat or the robe of many colors, showing he's the favored son. And then he loses that. It's dipped in blood, shown to his father to show that he's dead when he's not. Then he puts on the, a, prisoner, a slave's garments, and he's busy serving other people. Then he's thrown in prison, probably had an orange jumpsuit, I guess. That's why I made it orange. And he's falsely accused. I'm joking there. They didn't have orange jumpsuits in Egypt, okay? And then he's finally given this new robe of royalty, and he's exalted to the throne. Does that point to Jesus? Jesus was a carpenter, and as a carpenter wearing his carpenter clothing, he's baptized, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So he's the favorite son like Joseph. And then he becomes a rabbi and starts his ministry at age 30. When did Joseph start all this? Age 30, we'll see that in a second. And he, as a rabbi, he's not the kind of rabbi that says, hey, come serve me. He says, I came not to, to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So he's serving others. And then when he's stripped, they put on a purple robe on him to mock him as he's falsely accused like Joseph was. But then when he rises again, he's in his royal white robe, glistening like lightning as he's the resurrected Christ exalted to the throne. Pharaoh tells everybody, bow your knee to Joseph. Philippians 2.10 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. <clears throat> Here in Pearland, we've got the Jehovah's Witnesses. We've got the, the Mormons. That one, that's the one right near your house there, Charles. You recognize that? <clears throat> and they teach that Jesus is not God, that he's a created being. When the Bible clearly says Jesus created all things, in the, the New World Translation of the Bible, the Jehovah's Witnesses add the word other, that Jesus created all other things. And, they, and then in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They add the word was a God. They don't have the right view of Jesus. They don't have the right Jesus. In fact, I have a text that I got yesterday morning from some... Al and I were out here passing out Vacation Bible School flyers over here in this trailer park, and we ran into a couple of Mormon missionaries who were talking to these guys, we didn't want to be rude and interrupt. We wanted to give them flyers. I'm like, huh. But I, I almost, I wanted to go up and say, hey, don't listen to these false prophets. But I didn't want to be that rude, but I wanted to do something. So after we walked a little bit, I, God kind of told me what to do. So Al and I walked back and I said, hey guys, I'm sorry to interrupt. I said, just want to give you some Vacation Bible School flyers. I said, also I want to give you my business card. I'm a pastor. And, and I gave it to the Mormons and I gave it to these two guys. Okay. The, two, the LDS Mormons contacted me and said, hey, did you want to talk further? I'm like, yes, I do. So be praying for me because this week I want to buy them some coffee and tell them how they have the wrong Jesus. But it's interesting that they believe in a Jesus who is just human, where we believe that God became flesh and dwelt among us, like 2 Timothy 3.16 says. Listen to this. This is, the, this is the verse I want to share with them this week, because it makes it very clear. Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And when you see the word Lord in all caps, which name of God is that? Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the, the, the mixed up the letters of added to Yahweh, because Yahweh was the one they couldn't say, so they added consonants of Adonai in it to, so they could say something. It says, there is no other God besides me. 
a righteous God and Savior. So who, you ask a Jehovah's Witness, who's your Savior? Jesus says, well, Yahweh says, I'm your Savior. How many Saviors do you have? Yahweh became flesh. And he says, there's none other besides me. There's no other God besides me. And there's no other Savior besides me. But yet Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness teach that, well, Mormonism teach that the God that we worship right now, Yahweh, he's one of many gods. And he was once a man who exalted himself and became God. And they say, as God once was, so you can become, that you will become a God someday. But here Isaiah makes it very clear, there's no other gods besides me. He said, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow. Listen, Yahweh is saying to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then what does the New Testament tell us? It's written, where? In Isaiah, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to who? To God, right? And then watch where it goes. In Philippians, it says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Well, are they bowing to Yahweh or are they bowing to Jesus? Both, because Yahweh is Jesus. One God expressed in three persons, God became human flesh and lived amongst us. So he says, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up his hand or his foot. And all in other words, nothing's going to happen for the next 14 years where people don't answer to you, Joseph. That's what Jesus said about him. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See the picture of Jesus in Joseph? And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah. And um, it means, his name means the God speaks and lives. The God speaks and and lives. What a great name. You know, it's an Egyptian name, but still it's very true. I don't even think Pharaoh realized the great name he was given him. And he has he gave him in marriage Asenath. That's his Egyptian wife. Now some people say, well, was Joseph wrong in marrying an Egyptian woman? I really don't know. There's not enough detail. We do know that by marrying her, he became a citizen. So no one could take that citizenship from him. And Egyptian citizenship was very valuable, just like Paul's Roman citizenship was. We do see that in the future, she seems on board with everything that Joseph's doing as he continues to worship his God. So maybe she converted. Who knows? Um, but she is the daughter of Potiphar, ironically, Potiphar's wife. But this is, Potiphar, this is not Potiphar's wife. It's a related name. The priest of On, which is another god, a god of the sun. I kind of ironic there that Jesus is the son of God, both S-U-N and S-O-N. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old. And how old was Jesus when he started his ministry? 30 years old. How old were rabbis when they started their ministry? 30 years old. There's an, a Latin phrase called munus triplex, something I learned about about six months ago. And it's the idea that Jesus holds three offices, prophet, priest, and king. No one in the Old Testament, other than possibly Joseph, held all three. David was king, obviously, but was he also a prophet? Yes, he was. And then there was other uh, priests who were also prophetic, but there's no one who held all three. But there's some hint here that, that, jo that Joseph may have. Joseph definitely was a prophet, the way he interpreted dreams and they came true. He's exalted to at least royalty, but not quite the king. But uh, is he also a priest? Yes, because he's ministering to the people the word of God. So Joseph, in a lower way, is a picture of the Munus triplex. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh. It's a picture of Jesus leaving the presence of the Father, going out throughout the land. And, and all, every one of the Gospels talks about how Jesus went out through all the land of Galilee after he left the presence of the Father. And so during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. This is not just your good seven years. These are phenomenal seven years. And in every city, the food from the fields around it. So Joseph was smart enough to make government local, in other words, you guys raise these crop, it goes into your silo. You guys in this town raise this crop, it goes into your silo. So everybody was encouraged to work hard and save hard because that would be what they would be eating off during the seven bad years. And he said that the grain was like the sands of the sea. What does that sound like? Remember the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Joseph, that Israel would be like the sands of the sea and they'd be a blessing to all nations? And so... He has two sons, and their, their sons, their names mean something. And the first son is Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my hardship. Think about that. He's been through a lot of hardship. 
And it's not like he has amnesia. It means that those years, he doesn't think, he doesn't dwell on them. He's not traumatized by them. And he names his son that. And then he has a second son, Ephraim, that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What are you struggling with? Don't say, well, someday I'll be fruitful after all this is over. Be fruitful in the years of your affliction. Forgetting and letting go of past hurts frees you up to be fruitful and embrace the future. That's what his two sons mean. I forgot about the past. I'm fruitful in spite of all of it. So then eventually all those seven years came to an end. And he says, um, when in all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to them, go to Joseph. And when the world cries out to God for bread, give us this day our daily bread, what does the Father say? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He is the one. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he says, in all the land of Egypt, there was bread, all because of Joseph's administration. So when the famine had spread over all the land, he opened up all these storehouses. People were fed. People from all the parts of the world. And again, this is the Abrahamic promise, that they'd be a blessing to all the world. This is just a picture of bread. The ultimate blessing to Israel to the world is through the bread of life through Jesus Christ. Revelation 15, 4 says, All nations will come and worship who? Jesus, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a foretaste of the book of Revelation. And Romans says that every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us. You may be here this morning and say, well, I don't know if I buy all this Christianity stuff. I'm just here because my parents brought me, or I'm just here because my wife comes here, or whatever. You're going to stand before a holy God, and you're going to have to give an account for yourself. Your parents are going to give account for you. You're not giving an account for someone else. God is going to ask you, what did you do with your life? And more importantly, what did you do with my son? You see, we talked about when Shenda talked about all the evil that's in the world, and there's a ton of it. And God is in heaven just holding back his wrath. And the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so instead of God pouring out his wrath on you, he poured it out on his son. And so now his son offers eternal life to you. If you'll say, hey, let's trade places. I'll get on the cross for you. You give your life for me. And the verse goes on to say, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. You can be saved. Instead of on that judgment day, you, God pouring out his wrath on you, you could say, I deserve your wrath. I deserve your punishment, but I trusted your son and he took that punishment for me. So I plead the blood of Christ and the father will take you in his, in his arms and say, welcome to the life everlasting. But you may be there on judgment day and say, well, I got baptized. Uh, I gave money to the church. I, I wasn't as bad as Hitler. And the Bible says that Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you know Christ this morning? The Bible says that God demonstrated or showed his love for us and that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. And that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he died on the cross, was buried, and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for the beautiful picture of Joseph and the, the amazing sacrifices he made that he suffered, but he did it patiently. He suffered when he was falsely accused, and he, everything he did pointed to Jesus, who not only suffered but died for us. Father, I pray if there's one here this morning that's watching online or in person that doesn't know you, that today they'd put their faith in Christ. They'd give up on themselves, that they'd give up on all their dead works, and they would trust in the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you for Christ. Help us to be like him. And in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, I'd love to know about it. Text me. If you have, maybe if you're not ready yet and you want to ask questions, let's, let's talk about that as well. Um, time for question and answers. Ms. Chenda, would you be glad? Would you help me with that? Let's see. Yeah. So text in your questions right there, whether you're watching online. It's kind of funny. 
normally on a Sunday, where does everybody sit? This section over here is like packed. And today you can tell all these families are on vacation. Uh, evidently, a lot of people out of town. Um, let's see here. Testing. Actually, I don't have any questions yet. Our reception here is not the best, so uh, if you texted and didn't come through, you can raise your hand and ask a question. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I heard that. Um, yes, I, I, I wasn't sure whether to share that story, so I didn't. But anyway, so the teens and I were over here doing that. When we went to the whole worldview class, and so we had lunch, and we were staying for class. And as I'm teaching, I see a limousine stuck in the ditch out here. I said, hey, time on everybody. Let's go outside and help this, these people. So we started to push, but the driver didn't know how to drive in sticky situations. And so since I'm a recovering Yankee and know how to drive in the snow, I got in the driver's seat, and the teens, we, I rocked it back and forth, and the teens pushed it out. And these cars were like by going, yay! Well, evidently, one of them was your mom. And she was so impressed by our teens helping this couple that when they decided, when they moved here from California, they come check out Revolution. So anyway, that, yes, that, thanks for sharing. That's a pretty cool story. All right. Any other questions or comments? All right. That's unusual. Usually you have four or five questions on text. But all right, let's stand. The band's going to sing us out.